I am delighted to introduce you all to Dr. Belinda Bell. Belinda is a social entrepreneur who works through academia to drive real world social and environmental impact. She is also the chair of Mermaids, a leading LGBTQ plus charity which supports young trans and non-binary people. What do you think it means to be an ally? That can mean showing up when there's no trans people in the room. I know people get kind of bored with the pronouns thing, but the pronouns thing is simply the most useful thing you can do. We want kids to be happy and some kids are trans and that needs to be said because there are people who don't realize that kids are trans. I'm interested in basically everything. There are some very, very large pools of capital in the world uh, and they own almost everything. It's dangerous, dangerous times. How my life has meaning is to be attempting to make a difference in the world. If it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. Controversial, I know. Hello and welcome to My Kind of People. In this episode, I am delighted to introduce you all to Dr. Belinda Bell. Belinda is a social entrepreneur who works through academia to drive real world social and environmental impact. She is also the chair of Mermaids, a leading LGBTQ plus charity which supports young trans and non-binary people. I'm so grateful to welcome her into this community. I'm keen to learn lots about all of the social impact Belinda is helping create in the world today. And I know she will be your kind of person too. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Belinda Bell. Thank you, Meg. It's lovely to be here. Oh, you are so welcome. And thank you again for coming on the podcast. I've genuinely been really looking forward to chat with you. So welcome, welcome, welcome. And part of the reason I was so keen is I really want to learn about this incredible impact that you seem to be making in the world through your work. But before we learn more about your wonderful work, Belinda, could you please tell us where you have grown and flown? So where did you grow up and where would you consider home to be now? Well, I grew up on a farm initially. My dad was a farmer, Mm. but we moved around quite a bit. And I've ended up living in Suffolk in in the east of England, where I came back to the town that I went to at the kind of latter stages of my schooling. And when my ex-partner and I were thinking about moving to various Edmonds, we were like, but you don't go back to where you're from. Like, nobody does that. But it turns out that if you're from somewhere as nice as various Edmonds, then people do come back to where they're from. (laughs) So uh, I came back here when before my kids started school and I've been here and now they've all just recently left home. So I don't know where I'll go next. And it is interesting because these days it doesn't really, for the kind of work I do, you don't have to be physically located anywhere particular. So, you know, in a sense, the world's your oyster. But as we know, choice is a tyranny, really. Mm. So for the time being, I'm just admiring the leaves in the garden here in Suffolk. I love that. So from kind of the farm to this full circle trip back round to your roots again, when did you start to develop your passion for sort of social ventures? I didn't have a kind of uh, moment of discovery that this was the impact or change in the world was what I was going to do. It, It wasn't like that for me at all. I went to my undergrad I did in social anthropology. And when you finish a degree in social anthropology and you're a kind of lefty liberal type, <laughs> then the normal thing to do was then would be to go and do some kind of work in the global south, some kind of you know development-based work. And I didn't do that. And I didn't do that because I felt that almost all development work is neo-colonialist and much of it is faith-based, and I'm not at all interested in religion. 
And I still believe that to be largely the case. The exception being one of the organisations I'm a trustee of, actually, Peace Direct, um, who are explicitly not neocolonialist in their work in the global Mm south. So I decided not to do that. And I don't know why I didn't think about going into the public sector or public service. I don't know what looking back. I had no interest in working for a company. uh, I wasn't interested in making money for me or for anybody else. Like Money doesn't motivate me. And I didn't really want to work in a charity. And I think I didn't want to work in a charity because so much of charitable endeavour is about patching up problems rather than fixing them in the first place. And there's something that's kind of uncomfortable about a society where we leave to charity things that really should be being done elsewhere. So because I couldn't, didn't really decide to do any of these things, then I basically did nothing for a couple of years. You know, I did a lot of backpacking, you know, have various jobs, like mucked around, got drunk a lot, that kind of thing. (laughs) Sat in the pub and ranted about like, you know, inequality, so on and so forth. And then I was lucky enough to apply for a job at a social enterprise in London in the very late 1990s or early 2000s. And really at the very beginning of when, the new Labour government were using the term social enterprise and thinking about how we could use enterprise in disadvantaged communities. We used to talk about that at the time. And um, I interviewed for a job as an administrator at this organisation and the chief exec said, well, why didn't you apply for the development manager role? And I said, well, because I don't have three years experience working in a bank or three years experience running a business. And she said, yeah, don't worry about that. (laughs) Great. And so then I discovered all about social enterprise. And for many years, I thought it was the what was going to save us all. I no longer think that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for many years, I thought that that was the, the most useful thing I could do with my time. Yeah, well, it definitely sounds like you got off to a very impactful start and got to work with a lot of different people. And for anyone who doesn't know, because even though the term has been a lot around for a while, but it's new for people, what is a social entrepreneur? Yeah, sure. So when we talk about social enterprise, we're talking about people uh, or social entrepreneurs, we're talking about using business models to create social or environmental change. So rather than doing something in a charitable way where you get donations to do a thing or philanthropy to do a thing, social entrepreneurs try to use the power of markets to create better outcomes. So an example that lots of people are familiar with is Jamie Oliver's 15, a restaurant that employed young people with challenges and and taught them to be chefs and so forth. And the business traded as a restaurant. So it's like saying, what can we see about businesses that is good and works well? And rather than making the business's purpose about profit maximization, make the business's purpose about elimination of inequality or whatever your particular goal is. In the sort of last 20 years, there's been a strong support for this sort of idea, both here in the UK and internationally. But in many ways, the UK is a bit of a leader in this idea, although it's been happening forever. Right. In particularly, you know, the kind of Quaker businesses of the a few hundred years ago, the chocolate businesses and stuff, the business really only became so focused on profit maximization for shareholders in the 1980s. It's really, prior to that, business was conceptualized much more broadly for like a wider set of stakeholders than just the shareholders. So yeah, so it's the last 20 years has been a, a time of huge growth for this idea and the practice of social enterprise. Definitely. And I think there does seem to be that age old myth that you can't be nice in business. I personally disagree But I think the idea of a social business is still a fairly new concept for a lot of people. 
What are your personal thoughts on this? How do you bridge that mindset gap between social and commercial? Do you think it is possible to do both with longevity? Yeah, so I've kind of moved out of that world now Mm. because I've come to think that it's not the great solution I hoped it would be. And this is not because it's a bad thing in itself. Social enterprise is, is great and a social entrepreneurs are great people trying their best to make a difference. But what social enterprise doesn't do is critique business. It, it says, okay, here's business, how can we make it better? It doesn't really question the underlying premise of business. So, you know, you can have um, I don't know, an ethical clothing manufacturer that chases its garments through to the organic cotton field, where it comes from, et cetera, et cetera. But unless we're challenging the principle of consumerism and we basically don't need any more ethical clothes. We just need fewer clothes in the world. We don't need this consumerism. Mm-hmm. And in that particular example, we're also not challenging, you know, the patriarchy and images in particular of kind of how women need to present themselves and to some degree young men as well, I suppose. So to my mind, I've come to think that the framing for social enterprise which is that business is that we can't argue with the principle of business and the idea of a growth economy. That framing is wrong and it's not going to help us to get out of all of this with a livable planet. Mm. And I suppose that's the other thing that in the last 20 years, my understanding of what's going on in terms of climate breakdown and other associated risks has you know, become more and more enhanced. I feel stupid now that I didn't really focus on this stuff earlier in my career because I've always cared about equality. But the real challenges of inequality are landing right now in global South countries where people are dying because of climate change. It is the most important equality issue of our time, let alone anything else. So given that we are where we are, simply trying to adjust capitalism Mm -hmm. to respond to this is not enough. It's not been successful enough because I've tried it quite hard for 20 years. I set up a number of social enterprises. I set up the programs that teach social entrepreneurship at Cambridge University. I have you know, a doctorate in social entrepreneurship. I tried quite hard to make that thing work. And I've concluded that it doesn't work enough. It's not sufficient and that we really need to bring other tools to bear. Wow. And I really appreciate your honesty in that as well. I think there's so much power in being able to say, you know, I've dedicated a lot of time to this. I've seen a lot of good, but actually my viewpoint has changed. Mm -hmm. And with the tools that you've learned along the way and realizing that what you had so far is not enough, how would you describe the work that you've gone to now? How are you bridging that gap between not enough And what work are you doing now to make that impact you were looking for? Yeah, so I went back a bit and um, cleared everything out of my head. And uh, and a sensible friend of mine said, you know, if you just say have a blank sheet of paper and you stop what you're doing and have a blank sheet of paper and and think really broadly about what you do, you might find that that you end up coming back and doing something that's not a million miles away from what you started doing. Mm -hmm. But it's good to have gone through that exercise. And this is kind of essentially what's happened right at the beginning of my career in social enterprise. I was involved in social finance organisations, social investment, thinking about how we facilitate with money uh, social change. Because when we're in a capital runs our societies, like how the money flows is really, really important. If you get your hands on the money, it's the biggest lever for change. And that was what I did at the very beginning of my career. So it's funny to have come back to thinking about money because I'm not trained as an economist, I'm not interested in money, but it turns out that it is the most impactful thing. And so 
if you um, look at the world and how it works, there are different ways of making change. And one of those is definitely politics, which I haven't done at this stage, but I do consider it sometimes. But otherwise, if you're looking in the business side, then we what I kind of came to realize was that there are some very, very large pools of capital in the world and they own almost everything. Mm-hmm. And those pools of capital are largely pension funds, endowment funds and sovereign wealth funds. And I think whenever I don't know when the history of private pension funds is, but I guess like 100, 150 years ago, when people started saving money in a pension fund, it wasn't obvious then that 100 years down the track, they would be the largest pools of capital in the world. But they are. And they're also pools of capital that are the purpose of which is a kind of has a very long time horizon. Because if you're a pension fund, you want to be paying out a pension in 30 years time. So you care about 30 years from now in a way that the rest of the finance industry doesn't. Yeah. And they're also pools of capital for lots of people. So they're the closest we get to mutualized capital in the sense that millions of people are pension holders in these pension funds for instance. And so they're not owned by everybody, but they are owned by lots and lots and lots of people. So they've got an interesting angle, which is different to other types of pools of money. And so I've ended up working with a group of colleagues at the University of Cambridge, where we're working with these, and we call these asset owners, so pension funds and similar big pools of capital, to try to get help them to understand the role that they can play in addressing climate change and other catastrophic risks. And I guess from my personal perspective, if these people can't affect change, then nobody can. So I've gone to the place which I believe is one of the few kind of high value leverage points that I can get a handle on and get access to. And that's the the, the place that I'm now trying to make change. And it's interesting because although we talk about it, clearly the climate crisis is the biggest thing that everyone faces every day. But there are a lot of other cascading risks, things like biodiversity loss or antimicrobial resistance or forced migration caused by climate change. And, you know, all of this matters. And really within that, one of the systemic risks we look at is inequality. Mm. Because essentially, you know, inequality gets to a point where you have societal breakdown and civil society collapse. And at that point, none of your investments are worth anything when we don't have a functioning state any longer. So inequality matters as well as as part of this package of very, is is about interlocking risks and how and the interplay between them, of course. Yeah, fascinating. It's interesting how much finances can almost be a taboo to talk about sometimes. You know, we want to focus on the greater good and things that are bigger than money. Mm-hmm. Whether it's it's fascinating to hear how much that actually affects the change underneath. Yeah, I mean, without wanting to be too sort of a, I don't know, dismissive about it, but exactly like we live in a capitalist society. Capital is the is the key lever, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about other forms of capital. You know, like social capital, like you know, and and civic society, right? All of that stuff is going to be really important in how we navigate the decades ahead. But you're right, the financial capital is something that lots of people, particularly kind of, you know, people who with social concerns don't feel comfortable talking with, uh, talking about mm-hmm. and are not engaged with. So, but we can't really leave it to the finance people. 
you see. Yeah. Uh, it, it needs people like us uh, to also be working with the finance people who are also actually people like us. Like the reality is, is that I rarely come across somebody who is trying to do harm in the world. Mm. You know, most people are trying to do the right thing. Most people are absolutely terrified when they let themselves think about it, about what's going on in our world. But the kind of norms of finance, the language of finance, the the framing and the education around economics is not suited to the situation in which we find ourselves. And so it's important for people like me and my colleagues to be working in this field alongside traditional finance people, because it's like on these edges between disciplines and between expertise that we can make progress, I hope. Yeah, beautifully said. And I I love what you're saying about people are rarely actively trying to do harm. I think is it a famous Einstein quote where he's saying, we can choose to believe we either live in a beautiful or a hostile world. I choose to believe we live in a beautiful one. Yeah, nice. I think the word impact has come up a lot while Mm. we're speaking. What does the word impact personally mean to you? Mm, Yeah, I hate the word impact. And I've probably been using it. Uh, (laughs) It's a terrible word. Um, Why? Why do you think that? I'm interested to know. Well, it shouldn't be used in that term. I mean, something is impactful or it's not. I think it like effective is sometimes what people mean by impact. Mm. Um, But it comes with a whole lot of presuppositions about the world we want to see, which we don't necessarily want to lay out. Or we think it's just like a shorthand for it, so we don't need to lay them out. But yeah, I want to see a world where everybody has equality of opportunity and equality of access. And to do that, we need to think about kind of the intersections of people's lives and the challenges that people bring and think about it in a global context as well as a local context. So yeah, I guess when I say impact, and I'm appalled to appalled to discover how much I probably do say impact. Yeah, <laughs> what I mean is like fighting to be in a world where everyone has a, the opportunity to thrive and live a meaningful life. And so to do that, we need to, like, in a, you know, here in the UK, the inequality and poverty needs to be addressed. Like we can't expect people to thrive and, uh, and have a meaningful life when they can't feed their kids. And that's the reality for your and my neighbours today in 2022. So there's that, but there's also, yeah, like, like all the things about making sure the, the planet survives in a livable way for the decades ahead. But also, yeah, the ways that we can engage with one another as humans and have a world where we can not feel overwhelmed by external pressures and can enjoy and take joy and delight in the beautiful leaps or whatever it is today. We need both of those things. Mm, I love that. And I like the fact that you challenge the word as well. I think it's important to challenge these things. Sometimes we can get used to using the same sort of words. And I think swapping out effective instead of impact is a, a really powerful choice of words for sure. And it's clear you've inspired a lot of people with your work, Belinda, and myself included. But I'm interested to know who has inspired you growing up? Have you had any significant mentors throughout your life? So not particularly. So as I said, I didn't have like a moment when I was a young person where I thought, oh, you know, this is the kind of life I'm going to lead. It just kind of wasn't like that. Mm. But the woman who was the chief executive of the organization when I first moved into the social enterprise sector, and the one who said, oh, don't worry about that. You can work for me anyway. She like demonstrated to me that you didn't have to do things in the normal way. And that there were other people who thought like me, Mm. which I hadn't really realized until then. So it was it was amazing coming into that into the social enterprise sector at that time and meeting a whole lot of people who thought like me and talk like me about the issues at hand. So that was just amazing. And so from that connection, I then had really kind of 
in the kind of early years of social enterprise, a really close community of people who were trying to do things differently. And there was a, there's a guy called Faisal Rahman at Fair Finance, who I, I, I just was in touch with the other day, who I've known for like 20 years. And I remember me saying to him, you know, I never, because I was running a finance organisation, you know, I never really thought I'd, I'd end up being a banker. And he said, we're not being bankers, Belinda. We're trying to change the world. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and this was just like, you know, because we spent a lot of time worrying about kind of how to be bankers, which is what the, the thing we were doing. But the point wasn't yeah. to be bankers. The point was to change the world. So, yeah, so I guess I take my inspiration from all those people along the way. And it's interesting because now I'm based at the University in Cambridge, which is a fundamentally elitist place, right? Yeah. There are a lot of disadvantages to being at Cambridge and a lot of advantages, which is why I'm still there. There's a lot of disadvantages. And so making sure that I'm still connected with the community movements, community activism, and I, you know, I'm involved in various things as an activist. Yeah. And in particular, these days I take real joy from connections through to the cooperative movement, um, you know, those sort of housing co-ops, but tech co-ops, like the whole co-op space just feels to me like it has potential for like thinking about how we live together in the world going forward. Yeah. And talking about how we live together in the world moving forward. And also, I love that you touched upon, I think we can so often focus on the people that are not like us, that sometimes we forget about the people that are like us and that it's really important to surround ourselves with people and how much of, I'm going to use the word again, impact, (laughs) but they do have on us. What does community mean to you? And how has your idea of community changed as you've grown as a person? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question because I don't think, so I'm not particularly socially skilled, but you know, you have to, you don't have to, but I've had to learn to be all right at it because like it just makes my job easier or my life easier. But Mm -hmm. like to me, community, my parents were not very social at all. And so like community has been like a, a learning thing right so you have communities uh, when you're yeah as students and all studying a thing together or as I say the early days of social enterprise felt really like a community but then you know here where I live we have an amazing community on our street developed like partly out of you know technology tools can make such a difference like some years back there was a street party for which there was a Facebook group and then we kind of kept the Facebook group afterwards for like sharing stuff Mm. and then during lockdown we had a mutual aid group uh, on a WhatsApp and uh, those sorts of light touch interventions that remind you that your neighbours are real people when you don't see them all the time because well we used to go to the office all the time but now we all just sit in our offices I suppose all the time I don't know And it's just been incredible. Uh, I have a Ukrainian refugee and her child living with me at the moment. Amazing. And this has been an endeavour of, like, mine, but but actually also the kind of whole street to some degree. And not everybody has a spare room or feels that they can have somebody else in their house. But most people do want to help. And so there are other ways in which they've helped to integrate her into the community. And that's been just really lovely to see that, you know, people can play their roles in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I I truly believe that it is a gift to be part of a community or to have ever experienced that. I feel like it's one of those things that you maybe didn't realize you were missing until you are part of that. It brings out new qualities in you. And I personally feel so lucky to be able to interact and meet and learn so many wonderfully diverse and inspiring people in my life. The people that are different or opposing to me, or like you touched upon earlier, people that make you realize oh I'm not the only one who feels like this or thinks like this what traits do you value most in people and why I guess 
the obvious answer is curiosity. Mm. Uh, I'm interested in basically everything. <laughs> Me too. And like I know a bit about lots of things because I'm interested in everything. And I used to assume everybody else was interested in everything too. <laughs> but they're not. And some people have got like, you know, very, very deep interest in something. But I'm interested in like a little bit of everything. And uh, so, yeah, people I can engage with for long periods of time you know, there's like, I could just talk about anything with those people and you can see a new angle. And that curiosity, it's not just receptive, right? So I remember years ago, I was working in a factory when I was a teenager and a late teenager. Mm -hmm. And um, it was when the Discovery Channel was first on the telly. And this guy was telling me about some natural history program he'd watched about frogs or I don't know what the hell it was, uh, fish or something. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So does it mean... And his response was, I don't know. They didn't say anything about that in the program. And that wasn't really my question. My question was like, well, I wonder what the hell those fish do. I didn't expect him to answer it because the program had told him. I expect us to have a conversation about, well, I wonder what the fish do. Yeah. But that's not how everybody thinks. Yeah, no, I love that. And that's one of my greatest values as well, curiosity. I'm not the greatest at anything, but I can be good at lots of different things. And I just love to learn about other people. I think curiosity really brings an openness to my life and lets me, like we said, be parts of different communities and learn about different people who either think the same or don't. And a beautiful community that you have been a part of and continue to be a part of is Mermaids, which you are the chair for. Please could you tell us a little bit more about your work with Mermaids? What does the charity work involve and what do you hope your work inspires in people? Sure. So Mermaids is a charity that supports trans and gender diverse and non-binary young people. And to support the young people, we also support their parents sometimes or schools and so forth. And we do. We run training and we do policy work related to trans kids and uh, non-binary kids. And this is an extremely difficult time for trans people and for trans children in particular, who are the most vulnerable part of that community. I just I wouldn't have thought two years ago that it could possibly be as bad as it is now in terms of the hatred that trans kids and their families and supporters experience. So Mm. it's like a very, very, very difficult time. And what we really want is for a children's charity and uh, we want kids to be happy. And some kids are trans. And that needs to be said because there are people who don't realise that kids are trans in the same way that some kids are gay. They don't suddenly become gay at 18, you know, some kids are gay and some kids are trans. And um, because of the way the world is, those kids often don't have anywhere to turn and need a bit of advice or a bit of support. And I'd like to think we'll end up with a world where that's kind of just included in the mainstream, but it's not like that right now. So we do all sorts of different things with kids. We have like online forums for different age groups. Uh, We have real world meetups in the real world uh, around the place. Mm -hmm. We help people with name changing their names. And we ran a really amazing program that I've just read the report from over the summer called Mango, which was about training sort of older, young, older young people, sort of, you know, teenage, late teens in about activism. And that kind of was about teaching them about inequality and oppression for the first kind of few weeks and then about activism and like what to do about things for the latter part of the program. So that was really cool. So 
we're the largest trans kids support organisation in the country. And so we do have like a very wide range of services that we provide. But at the core of it is a helpline, which, you know, back in the day was a phone line and it still is a phone line. But a lot of it now is also text messages and emails and things like that, as you can imagine. Yeah. And the, it, the pandemic was an interesting time for trans kids because for some kids, their only safe space was school because not all trans kids, sadly, live in supportive homes. Yeah. So for some kids, it was very, very difficult. Conversely, for some trans kids, the safe space they have is at home and, and school was really difficult. So for some kids, it worked out pretty well. So we try to be there, obviously, for all the children. And, you know, the internet's a great place because you can find mermaids and you can find other kids like you. But of course, as soon as you're looking for this sort of information, you are exposed to terrible degrees of hate towards, as I say, one of the most vulnerable groups in our society. So we try to do a lot of stuff with joy as an organisation and the team are amazing at doing all that. But from my perspective as the chair and involved in the governance of the organisation, it's hard work. It's really, really hard work. You know, we're uh, constantly attacked and attacked by in the press and elsewhere and have complaints made about us all the time from people who are transphobic. And so I guess it's my job and the rest of the trustees' job to try to hold the organisation safe and to keep the organisation organised so that the team and the volunteers can do the direct work with kids. And I should say, actually, we also have residential sometimes where we bring kids together. And I've been to a residential and it was just absolutely delightful to see a bunch of kids of kind of quite a wide age range just being able to play and be, and be themselves in a way that they often feel that they can't at home or in their school. Amazing. I imagine it's something so many of us, myself included, can take for granted that that freedom and joy is something I can definitely get on board with. And I think it can come back to curiosity as we were talking about. One of the things that I value so much about curiosity is, as I mentioned before, this it allows me to come into situations with an open mind and an excitement to learn. Whereas I think without that curiosity, you can come into situations where you've already got a conclusion and there can be a lot of fear around the unknown and what we don't know. And that can cause a lot of ignorance. And so I find a lot of people sometimes can be scared to approach things that they don't know. So they come up with their own conclusion because that's safer to them. What do you think it means to be an ally? And what are some simple ways that you think people could approach charities like yours or and get to know people trans people non-binary people people that might be different to them in a way that feels because at the end of the day if people are reacting the way they are it is because they are potentially scared right they're scared of what they don't know so how can they approach these situations with a willingness to understand and be less afraid of learning and getting things wrong yeah, you're right. I mean, a, a lot of the, the challenges that, that we face uh, supporting the trans community are, you know, is phobia as in, as in fear. Unfortunately, like some parts of that have got, you know, to an extreme, like, uh, it's a bit like COVID denial, right? They're like someone who's a bit scared about having a jab, I'm, you know, we can talk to, but there comes a point where where someone's a COVID denier where they've got beyond having sensible conversation. Yeah. I and, and mermaids also, we're not interested in trying to convert people who are transphobic, who hate trans people and who don't believe that these kids have a right to be who they are yeah. but there's a whole bunch of people uh, who don't feel like that who are just a bit bemused or confused and in particular they tend to think they've never met a trans person 
the thing is we all meet trans people regularly but we just don't know it yeah. and if I was the trans person who was not spotted as being a trans person I would also be just getting on with my life yeah. and so good on them but this is kind of one of the challenges is that it's not fully understood that trans people are amongst us all the time and um, yeah. in some of the current discourse about bathrooms it's kind of obsession with bathrooms so trans people have been using the bathroom uh, in public areas uh, all of your and my life and since before so there's nothing new about trans people there's nothing new about them going to the bathroom or the changing room or whatever of their gender they've just been getting on with it and uh, and will one hopes continue to get on with it so there is this challenge about people not having role models necessarily of, of trans people who just live their own lives and um, so I got involved in this world where it's because I have a trans daughter. And when she came out, I Googled and I wanted to find like just trans people who just like, you know, grew up and, you know, just have regular lives. And they and they, yeah. I was delighted to discover they exist. And one of our had a speaker at a mermaids event a while ago who was talking to trans kids and he was saying he was a trans man. He said, you're going to be like everyone else. You're going to grow up. You're going to fall in love. You're going to get married. You're going to get divorced. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you're just going to be like everybody else. And this is what we want for trans people. So your question about allyship then is, is firstly the inclusion of trans people, you know, goes hand in hand with inclusion of women, inclusion of people of colour, inclusion of people with disabilities. So giving people the space to be who they are and to be non-judgmental about that, right? Because people are different and engage differently. I think obviously doing some research into the fact that, you know, trans people exist and, and, and have existed in all walks of life is, is useful. Practically, on a day to day, I know people get kind of bored with the pronouns thing, but the pronouns thing is simply the most useful thing you can do is to ask people uh, what their pronouns are, to tell people what your pronouns are. One of the joys of Zoom meetings is that we all have our pronouns written across, or we can have our pronouns written across the bottom of our screens to not make assumptions about people's gender. But with the pronoun thing as well, it's all right if you make a mistake. So I think some people are rightly, they've become so concerned about this whole area and not wanting to offend people that they just don't want to ask anything and they don't want to do anything. And the reality is I make mistakes all the time, right? And I'm chair of a big mermaids, a big trans charity, and I still misgender people. I ask stupid questions because I'm not trans myself. And if I'm not misgendering people on purpose, if I'm not asking stupid questions out of spite and malice, then nobody minds. So, you know, be kind and educate yourself. We shouldn't be putting it upon trans people to have to tell us stuff that we could find out easily on the internet. But it's people do not object to genuine questions that come from a a position of, of genuine curiosity and care. So try not to be afraid of offending people would be what I'd say. And yeah, and, and try and get people's pronouns right. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I'm really glad you touched on that because that was what I was trying to get across with my question. Because I think you obviously have people that are very much part of that community because they might be trans or non-binary themselves or have a family member like yourself. You have the people that are very much opposing that community, which is not okay. And I say hatred would not be accepted in any form. But you do have a lot of people that kind of form this middle ground where they would like to be more involved in the community. And they do have that curiosity and that willingness to learn and to welcome. But there's that fear there of getting it wrong. And because we don't want to get it wrong, that means sometimes you might not even turn up at all. Yeah. Default. 
And to, and right now, you know, we really need allies. Mm. The challenges that the trans community is facing, like this is Section 28 all over again. Uh, we're hearing the most things I never thought I'd hear in my lifetime, these extraordinary tropes, the kind of conflation of trans people with sexual predators. Mm. Like this is straight out of what happened to the gay community culminating in Section 28. Yeah. And those battles, I don't really like to use military analogies, okay, these challenges can't be overcome just by the trans community yeah. because they're too small, it's not enough of them, but also they're too weak and they're absolutely exhausted with this stuff. Yeah. And so for the rest of us who do have the energy and the resources, it really matters to show up. And that can mean showing up when there's no trans people in the room. Okay, it's 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 not allowing someone to be misgendered when they're not there, but also not allowing transphobic jokes to pass in the same way that we didn't, we don't allow racist jokes to pass, even if there isn't a, a person of a different color in the room, whatever, right? We don't do that. I think it's the way that we can support trans rights now. We really do need the, the rest of the, of the cis, by which we mean cis, cis people and not trans people. We need the rest of the cis community to be vocal in condemning transphobia. And in standing up for trans people, right, this is not just about trans people. This is the kind of front edge of a kind of emergent populist fascism. And so this isn't about just trans people It's or trans kids. It's about women's rights. It's about the people with disabilities' rights. It's about they're, they're coming for all of us, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so we need to kind of stand together. And uh, you might never have thought about trans issues before, but it turns out that they are, unfortunately for me and my organisation and my daughter, they happen to be the thing that's ended up right being used at the front of these culture wars mm. and I can promise you that when my daughter came out and when I first got involved with mermaids I didn't expect this to be the issue which became the kind of you know crosshairs of the culture wars this is not what any of us want we just want trans kids to be able to get on with their lives and have a good life like the rest of us yeah. but this is what's happened and so I think having for people in the cis community to have awareness to what is going on and to how trans people are being weaponized and that this is a worry for all of the anybody else in any form of minority, anybody else who doesn't have power. It's dangerous, dangerous times. And I say that much more powerfully with much more concern than I would have done six months or a year ago. I can't believe the things that are becoming normalised in the UK. And the UK is kind of leading on, on transphobia, just to reassure you. Some of the rest of the world is looking at us like, what on earth is going on in the UK? Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's quite bad in America too. But there are bits of Europe that are utterly perplexed about why this is happening here. And I think there's a complicated conflation of reasons to why it's happening here. But that doesn't really matter. What matters in terms of allyship is to know it's happening, to know it's not a small thing. It's the beginning of a much bigger issue. And to say, please, please, please stand with us, in particular trans kids, they do not have a voice of their own and they shouldn't have to use it anyway. That's what we're here for. Yeah, and it's going to take all of us. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's hugely important what you've shared. And also all the advice you've given is very accessible and actionable. It's quite often we feel like we're not able to make a big gesture, but it's actually the small little gestures that have such a compounding effect that we wouldn't even realise. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I can't say enough about that. I know it just may, it may seem insignificant because it is insignificant to you to put your pronouns after your name, but it makes a huge difference to trans people in the room and non-binary people in particular if we normalise the use of pronouns in, in our names and our emails and stuff. And like it's no skin off my nose to have my pronouns written. It's like, you know, it's not very difficult. It's like it's no trouble for anyone to do it. And it makes people feel much more included. And it's so accessible, like you say. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's going to be hugely impactful for the listeners and gives them a great place to start. And in terms of people wanting to make an impact or be more effective, where do you think is a good starting point? I mean, I know you've worked with, you might have moved away from that area now, but you worked with so many different kind of startup social ventures. I don't know if you had any Mm. that particularly stood out for you. But what advice do you have for anyone who's wanting to start, like uh, they're looking at their own lives and thinking, I want to make some sort of change? What's a good starting point for them? Do you have any advice? Yes. So the, the first thing I'd say is don't worry if you don't know what your thing is. So some people get like they want the world to be a better place, but they haven't got a thing they're really interested in. And they worry that they need to develop a passion for, you know, environmentalism or animal welfare or whatever, trans people. You don't need to have a an all-abiding passion for a thing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I don't. I've always been a generalist. Like, I'm actually interested in systems and, like, systemic change and how we can do capitalism differently or whatever. So it's not a particular thing. It's about, for me, it's a methodology. So, so don't worry that you haven't found your thing yet. Uh, you might never find your thing, but that's okay. So that's the first thing. Don't get kind of um, bogged down in that. And then don't do bad things. So... I'm thinking here, like, because I speak to students quite a lot of the time. If you're under 30 and you're at the beginning of your career, do not go and work in the fossil fuel industry. It is the case that the fossil fuel industry will need to change, that we'll need people inside it changing it. If you're under 30, you're not going to be the person who makes that change. You're going to be a tiny, tiny cog in the wheel or whatever it is. Don't go somewhere that's going to sap your soul and where you're not going to be able to make a difference. The changes in those sorts of organisations, in the bad organisations, we're going to need to convert the senior people who are already there. So it's not going to be that we take them over from the inside. So don't waste your time with that. And then think about how the world works. So, you know, we talked a bit about civil society and community um, over the last little while. And so the world is split into kind of civil society and community and family and all that stuff. And then kind of the politics and the public sector and governmental stuff. And then the private sector and and business. And so you might be working or living your lives in in more than one of those spaces because you'll definitely be somewhat within a family of some sort, but you might have to touch on public sector and you might touch on private sector. And so you can kind of think about the world that way and how you want to intervene. And so for me, these days, I don't have huge amounts to do with the private sector, but where I do, it's about trying to change the practices of businesses to make them stop buggering everything up. So that's the private sector. Then there's like, how do we act in the public sector? And some of us will work in the public sector as nurses, street cleaners, government MPs or whatever. Think about local politics. Think about national politics. Like some of us have to go and do that because otherwise we're just leaving the other people to do it. Right. And we can see where that's got us. Mm -hmm. So thinking about both activism as well, which is kind of civil society stuff, but also official political uh, approaches. I'm not completely bought into the, oh, things can never change politically. I mean, we've seen incredibly fast changes in politics in the, particularly on the continent, in, in Europe in the last few years. Yeah. We have to have hope that we can do that. 
So if you're like, I don't know, living your life and you've got a job here and you're interested in that there, I'd also really recommend becoming a trustee of a charity or a governor of a school. So some kind of formal voluntary position. And what's cool about that is that you learn how organisations work. And then when you've got a job, you're kind of more understanding of people on the other side of the table and so forth. We need people to step up and do those kind of organisational boring roles things so that things can work. But also you really learn from doing those jobs, those voluntary roles, and they give all of those give more things to other bits of your life. So as well as kind of, you know, I don't know, hanging out in the local babysitting circle, which is an informal thing, think about getting involved formally, as I say, as a school governor or a trustee of something or other, you know, I think that's really good. And I mentioned just then hope. Hope is a practice. Mm. Sometimes it's very, very hard to have hope, but that's because it doesn't just like fall out of the trees. Hope is a practice. And so practice hope because basically it's all we've got, right? So so practice hope because, you know, otherwise, you know, you you can't maintain the energy to, to keep moving forward. Practice hope. I think, I think that is fantastic advice and needed as well. And With the experience that you've gained so far across these different sectors and changing in thought patterns across this time as well, why do you do the work that you do? I mean, what brings out the best in you as a person? I do the work I do partly because I basically have no talent as a guitarist or a painter or anything else. (laughs) Such a shame. (laughs) You pick the easy path then. Otherwise, I might by now have thought... "Mm." I might have given up because I spent 25 years trying to make the world a better place. And I don't really think I've got anywhere. It's been like quite fun and I probably haven't done too much harm, but really I haven't really got anywhere yet. So I think it would be a completely reasonable thing to give up and to just play the guitar or paint. But like I said, I'm rubbish at those things. (laughs) So I've had to kind of come back and come in for another world because for me, that is how I make meaning or how my life has meaning is to be attempting to make a difference in the world. And that is not for everybody. And that is also okay, because I couldn't, I sometimes think, because I know quite a lot about starting businesses and I've started a number and I've like invested in loans and know lots about that sort of thing. And um, sometimes I think I should just go and start a private business, a for-profit business, because that would be so easy because all the businesses I've been involved with have been trying to make, do social good and to do that, you have to like make the money work in the business and then do the social good. Yeah. But like the making the money work is just the so a priori part. And so if that was all I had to do, it's like, well, that would just be easy. But if it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. Yeah. Right? And I'm not actually interested in doing easy things, but I see that for other people, they aren't driven in this way. And that's okay too, because we need people who, um, well, I need people to just like give me joy and to like, yeah, to listen to the music that they make and to like hang out with them and chat about, yeah. and, you know, the leaves and all the rest of it. So, you know, it's this sort of path is not everybody's. It's not a thing that to be proud of or that I even feel I've chosen, right? It's just, this is the kind of thing I do and other people kind of do other things and that's okay. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think it's interesting you brought up the word easy because I know I've fallen into this before of when you can fall into comparison with other people. And I think we make the mistake in thinking that life should be easy, that there are easier paths than others. And if we're not finding things easy, we're somehow getting it wrong. But I think it is the opposite of that. And this could either be give you fuel in your belly or it could be very depressing. But I believe that life is hard. 
it's always going to be hard, but where you do have an element of choice is in the hard that you choose. Mm, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. You can, yeah, choose your hard. Yeah, yeah. I like that. You might not have chosen necessarily the path that you thought you were going to go down, but you have chosen the hard in what you're doing. Mm. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's way more satisfying. Like, there's no point in solving tiny problems where you could solve medium-sized problems or whatever, right? So you choose, yeah, what's hard for you. And as I say, for me, that makes it uh, interesting. But I, you know, we talk, in a sense, when I talk about that stuff, I'm talking about, I mean, partly about my work work, as in the things I'm paid for, but also about my voluntary work, as in the work I do at Mermaids and elsewhere. But I'm not sure about, I don't think our personal relationships have to be hard. Mm. Interesting. Why, why do you think that? Yeah, I'm not that focused on... Um, yeah, I've been lucky enough to find people in my life where I don't have to work at it. I'm not that convinced by working at relationships. Kind of like think that, that good ones are kind of work all right most of the time. Controversial. <laughs> and I like that. And I like that we're finishing on a controversial thought potentially for people to go away and think about that. I know that's something I'm going to sit and ponder for sure. But Belinda, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I really felt I've learned so much and you've really given me some accessible and actionable ways that I could show up better as an ally and as a person as well. And I really am grateful for how you are showing up in the world. And I would love for more people to be able to experience your work further or support it. So how can listeners support the work you're doing moving forward? Sure. Well, you can find me uh, online on LinkedIn. My name's Belinda Bell, and you, I'm sure you'll be able to identify me. I'm based at the University of Cambridge, and you can find mermaids on um, mermaidsuk.org.uk. And we would very much welcome donations. We've been having a terrible range of attacks in the press recently, and that has resulted in us having uh, less resources or fewer resources than we expected right now. So that would be great. Yeah, definitely. And thank you for your openness in that as well. Hopefully people can really respond positively and that's that you've given them a really good way to support you. So yeah, thank you so much, Belinda, for all the wisdom you shared today. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your time, energy and wisdom. Thank you for caring. Uh, thank you for working so hard to bridge the gaps between people and working hard to bring about joy and for your continued contributions to creating social impact. And thank you for being my kind of person. It's a pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to My Kind of People. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would be so grateful if you could please share the love forward. You can show your support in three simple ways. You could please subscribe by clicking the follow button on your favorite podcast platform or YouTube. You could send the episode to a loved one or you could share this episode with others by tagging me in your social media stories at The Meg Method. Just see the show notes for more details. And if you're feeling extra kind, it would make my day if you could please leave a review. Thank you to my legendary podcast team, Brooklyn Fraser and Alicia Navarro. Your hard work and expertise is always appreciated. And thank you again to you, the listener, for being my kind of person. See you next time.